Uh, last week was Psalms number one. This week is Psalms number two. And if you remember, if you heard it, uh, a psalm is scripture set to music. Psalms chapter two, or Psalm two is prophetic in nature. Some of it has already been fulfilled. Some of it is going to be fulfilled in the upcoming future, probably sooner rather than later. And so we're going to look at some of those prophecies and how they were fulfilled and, and kind of what to expect. So I want to start by reading Psalms chapter 2. Why did the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let's break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one in heaven, then thrown in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed Zion, my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. God, it's, this book of Psalms is a great big book, and it's going to take a long time to get through it. God, I just pray that as we look at Psalms 2 today that you would speak to us. Uh, what you want us to hear for today. God, I pray that you would take the words that I say and make them the words that you want us all to hear. Change them if you have to. I just want you to be glorified and blessed by it and what is here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of this message, as you see from this scary-looking picture, is Conspiracy Theory. Uh, conspiracy Theory is a belief that a particular unexplained event was caused by a covert or sneaky group. Uh, it's the way to explain the outcome that wasn't expected or a way to manipulate a situation to get what we want. Uh, throughout the election, there is this huge idea that there was a lot of conspiracy. This is just kind of an example of, of a conspiracy that has taken place. Side A says the election was fair and square. Side B says there is a massive amount of fraud and cheating. Side A looks at side B and says, you're just sore loser. Your conspiracy theory is that we cheated in order to get the outcome that we wanted. That's kind of an example of a conspiracy theory. Now the way I'm using conspiracy theory today is a slightly different, maybe a bit misleading. Uh, it's, it's, I chose conspiracy theory because it is a theory that the conspiracy of the wicked is going to work. It's a theory that I'm going to get away with my wickedness. That's what's going on in the, the minds of the people who are against God. It's a theory because it is not going to prove true. We're going to look at two points today. The one is the schemes of man against God. And the second is God's response to man. And I love God's response to man. And that's going to be a fun part of this message. But uh, the first that we're going to look at is the schemes of man against God. Verses 1 through 3. Why did the nations conspire? Obviously, they're, they're scheming. Obviously, they're trying to uh, change the outcome. They're trying to get away with what they want. Why are the people plotting in vain? 
The kings of the earth, they take their stand, and the rulers gather together, all united against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Uh, verse, <clears throat> verse 1 says, why did the nations conspire? The King James Version says, why did they rage? It's, it's denoting the plotting of the wicked against the righteous. Picture a lynch mob of all these wicked people scheming in the dark, going after some righteous person, and that righteous person is helpless. They have nothing that they're going to do against this huge mob of people. That's kind of what is being pictured here. He says, why do they plot in vain? Why do they imagine a vain thing, something that's not going to happen? It's a delusion. It's useless. Why are they doing this? Why do they think that their schemes and their plans against God are going to work? Now, scheming against God is not a new thing. It's something that happened, I think, about day eight of creation or day eight of our, the history of the world because the serpent started trying to scheme against God by taking out Adam and Eve, causing them to go against what God wanted. What this is talking about, though, you can find in Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 through 5. And this is dealing with Jesus and all the wicked people who are scheming to take out Jesus. It says, And the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Throughout Jesus' whole ministry, what were people trying to do? They were trying to shut him up. They were trying to destroy his work. They were trying to eliminate him. They were conspiring. It was a theory in their mind that it would work. Uh, but it, and, and for a moment it did. Because you guys know how it turns out. One of Jesus' 12, a, a guy by the name of Judas says, Hey, for 30 pieces of silver, I will hand, you over to Je hand, you over, hand Jesus over to you. And so they worked out this scheme. And so for a time, it looks like their conspiracy worked. But as you know, it was part of a bigger plan that God allowed. And ultimately, their conspiracy failed. Because Jesus rose from the dead. He was God and Lord over all. And he conquered death to give us victory, to give us eternal life. Schemes have been part of the past. Did you know schemes are still taking place today? Schemes against God to stop God's people. You think about the people around the world who are being persecuted. People are put in prison. People have their, their lands taken from them. People lose jobs. People are put to death. Why does all that take place? Why are people persecuted? Because people are scheming against God. If God wasn't there, those people would be just fine. But they're trying to stop God by stopping his people. Think about our flag salute. One nation under God. What's so wrong with that? It's that word God, that three-letter word God, that our nation does not want. They're scheming to get rid of God in our world today. Think about something that's really pertinent to what's going on right now. Code restrictions on the churches. The adult entertainment industry, you can have that. You can go to the bars. You can go to the casinos. You can go do X, Y, and Z, but doggone it, you better not go to church. They're trying to stop God. They're, they're conniving, they're scheming to say, get rid of God, get rid of all his people, because they're conspiring. But God says it is in vain. And it's something that's going to happen in the future. It's going to obviously get worse for us as Christians in the future, but very in the, in the very distant future, 
uh, Revelations chapter 19, verse 19. It says, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on his horse and his armies. When Jesus comes back, this is what's going to take place. All these people are going to join up their forces and go against God. They're, they're scheming. They're getting together. They think we're going to win this war. And then it happens again. After the thousand year reign of Christ, all the peoples of the earth are going to gather against God. And it's just something that just inside of man says, I want to be in charge. I want to be God. I want to have that place. And so they're always conniving, always scheming against God. God's response to man. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. We all like a good laugh, right? We understand laughing, that, that good feeling, that ha, ha, ha feeling, because we've heard a good joke or something clever has been said. That's what God is doing. He's laughing. He's like, are you guys serious? You think you're going to get away with this? He scoffs at them. He scorns them. He despises them to their face. And, um, and I love this because God has a sense of humor. He's not remotely worried or concerned. You know, I think about the kind of situation where I've already watched the game. I've already watched and seen how the movie turns out. And then I'm sitting with somebody who hasn't. And they're freaked out. Oh no, my team is going to lose. The other team has the ball. The ball is going through the air. It looks like they're going to score the touchdown. And they're freaked out. And I'm sitting there calm as a cucumber, cool as a cucumber because I know at the last second. My team steals the ball, runs 100 yards <laughs> down the field, and wins the game. Right? That's the way it is. God's completely relaxed. He says, this is kind of fun. I'm, I'm going to enjoy watching this turn out. Psalms uh, 37, verses 12 and 13, it says, The wicked plot against the righteous, and they gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked because he knows their day is coming. His blood pressure doesn't rise, right? He doesn't get nervous or carried away. He's just is as calm as he can be because he already knows. The Bible tells us that uh, God is omniscient. Um, Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10. Omniscient means he knows everything. It says, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is to come. He makes those things known because he sees it all. Nothing is a surprise to him. So he's looking at this and thinking, you guys got to be kidding. You think you're getting away with this. It's just a good belly laugh for God because he knows that they're not. Uh, even in Matthew chapter 11, verse 23, the second half of that verse, you find out that God even knows what could have happened. Um, He's talking to one of the cities and says, if you guys would have received, you guys received all the miracles. If these people would have received these miracles, they would have repented. So shame on you because you got even more information than they did. So he knows even what could have happened. So he is not concerned. He is not worried about it. God is omnipotent. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Something's going awry. God knows how to handle it. He's not 
afraid. He, he's not limited. He's all-powerful. He can do whatever that he wants to do. Therefore, he can laugh at it because he is in control of how it is all going to turn out. So God's first, first response was laughter. You've got to be kidding. God's second response was a declaration. It's a declaration of victory. I have installed Zion, my king, on Zion, my holy hill. Now, obviously, this is, this is not taking place yet. This is what is, sup is supposed to come. This is one of those prophecies of the future, but it's a done deal. God has already written it in the pages of history. God has already seen it take place. He knows what is going to happen. He says, I have already taken care of it. When he's saying, my king, anybody want to take a, a shot at who that is? And the Sunday school answer? Jesus. He says, Jesus, I've already put Jesus on Zion in Jerusalem, which is uh, where he's going to rule and reign someday. He says, I've already taken place. This is the declaration of a victory that is guaranteed. And this is going to take place during the millennium when Jesus comes back and rules on earth for a thousand years. Now, I think you can hopefully kind of see that. There's the pre-trib, the mid-trib, and the post-trib. And everybody's always wants to know, when is Jesus coming back? But I want you to notice something right here. They all agree on this. Jesus is coming back. And when is it the millennium taking place? And all three, it's exactly the same. So even if we disagree on these kinds of things, we all know this is what is going to take place. Jesus is going to rule and reign in Jerusalem for a literal thousand years on earth. And that's what this is referring to. Uh, who's going to be involved in this? Well, the wicked won't. Because when Jesus comes back and defeats all those people, the only people that are going to be left are the, the, people, the righteous people through the tribulation. And whoever comes back with him, when, uh, all of you should be there. Okay, during this thousand-year reign of Christ, you should all be there. Because if you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to be ruling and reigning with him for a thousand years. So you should be a part of this and be able to witness a little bit of what we're going to be talking about. How is this going to look? Well, obviously a thousand years long, uh, but at 11, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 8, it says the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. Obviously things that you're not going to see in the world today. Um, it says the cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. That's what's going to be taking place when Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years. That's what it's going to be like. And if you are a believer, you're going to be right there next to your kid sticking your hand in the viper's nest. You're going to be petting the lion that you've always wanted to pet. It's not going to bite you. You know, we were watching these uh, crazy things on YouTube where there's animals who, who escape or animals where you're at the zoo and this great huge gorilla just runs and charges into the glass, breaks the glass. But it's I mean, super thick so he doesn't come through. You're not going to have to worry about that. You're not going to be looking at these things behind a glass or a fence wall. You're going to be hanging out with them, right? That's how it's going to be in, be in the millennium when Jesus is ruling and reigning for a thousand years. It says um, in verse 9, it says, You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. It's going to be completely 
calm and peaceful because Jesus is ruling. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, it's going to be this way because Jesus is reigning. It says, In the last days, the, mountains, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will, say, will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He's going to judge between the nations. And he's going to settle the disputes among the people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take a sword against nations, nor will they train for a war anymore. It's going to be calm and peaceful. If you have a problem, you're going to take it to Jesus, and he's going to give you the honest and the clear right answer every time. He's not going to be bought off. He's not going to be persuaded. He's never going to be wrong. And the proof that all this is going to take place has already happened. The proof that we're going to have this thousand-year reign of Christ has already taken place. Uh, verse 7, it says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. It's this idea that Jesus is, uh, the father has become the father to Jesus. Jesus has risen from the dead. Now this word, um, and the, the King James says begotten. The father saying that Jesus is begotten of the father. Well, if you know what begotten means, it means to give birth. It means to beget, to deliver as in a woman having a child. Well, wait a second. I thought Jesus was God. How, how could Jesus be begotten? Was Jesus created? Was Jesus formed? Was Jesus adopted? No, because Jesus is God from eternity past. Um, he had the same, and John 17, 5, it talks about Jesus saying, I want to have the glory I had with you before creation. So Jesus wasn't birthed. He wasn't uh, created. He wasn't formed out of the dust of the ground. Jesus has always been. So how can he be begotten? How can the father tell the son that you, I have become your father? Well, this is his re relation to when Jesus rose from the dead. Because in Romans 1, 4, it says that he was declared with power to be the son of God because he rose from the dead. In Acts 13, 33, it talks about how Jesus is raised as the firstborn from among the dead. It means that he is the first to rise. He is the, the most important uh, to rise. And so in, in terms of him being begotten, it's not that he was created. It wasn't that he was birthed, but is in relation to us as people, he was the first to rise. So, so in a sense, God has that position over the son as his father by raising him from the dead. And that in relation to man, that's kind of how we can understand it. It was a figurative kind of picture of, of him raising, of him being begotten of the father, of being Deliver, of being given birth of because he was raised from the dead. So it's not a literal thing as if Jesus was created by God. It's this picture that you get of him rising from the dead as the firstborn that shows that he was begotten of the Father. So right now, there are nations around the world, they're, they're probably in big cities right now, scheming to try to stop God, to try to shut down his churches and other countries to try to persecute these Christians, to put them in jail, to finally and once and for all get rid of God. People are scheming to do that. But at the same time that that's happening, we have proof right now 
that Jesus is the ultimate victor, that he is going to rule and reign for a thousand years, that the wicked, that their conspiracy is only a theory because it's never going to prove to be true. Jesus, or, or I'm sorry, God is in heaven. He's laughing at the wicked. We have a declaration of victory. And now we see the response number three is that it is time to choose. It is time to make your choice if you're going to stand with the wicked or if you're going to choose to stand with God and stand with the righteous. There's three parts to this. First of it is the warning in verse 10. It says, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. David, as the writer, is speaking for God, is telling these people, look, you guys are scheming. You're, you think you're going to get away with standing against God. He's saying, here's a warning. Take heed. This is not going to work. For the moment, it might. You were able to put Jesus to death on a cross, but that's it. He rose again, and so your victory was short and, and not sweet. It wasn't, you, you didn't really win anything. So he's trying to warn them that don't go that direction. Don't make your plans to stand against God. Warning those people who are trying to shut down the churches. Don't do this. Do not try to stand against God. The wicked are constantly trying to do this. They think they're going to get away with this. And God is warning them. Because God doesn't want these people to do this. But God doesn't want them to reap the consequences of those actions. God does not want those people to go to hell. Um... He wants them all to come to eternal life. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it talks about how he is patient. Not how we understand patience. Way more patience than we have because he doesn't want the wicked to perish but all to come to eternal life. God, God sent prophets to talk to the people. God ultimately sent Jesus to the cross to pay for the sins of those people, for that wickedness so that it can be forgiven. And I'm here to tell you that I'm, I fit into that category. I was one of those people that were wicked. I, was, I wasn't scheming against God as if I wanted to try to stop God. But in my everyday life of sin, of not choosing God, it was like I was scheming to put myself in that position, put myself first. God didn't want that. So he sent Jesus to die on the cross so that we could have eternal life. Where we say, okay, I'm surrendering my life. I'm not going to live for me anymore. I'm going to trust you as my Savior, and I'm going to live for you. So he sent out this warning that I hope that if you need to hear it, you hear it as a warning. That you re remember that the world out there needs that warning, that their life is not going to work out. They're not going to get away with their sins. They're not going to get away with putting themselves first and not putting God first. So the first thing is there is a warning. The second, there is an urging. In verse 11, he says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss, and verse 12a, it says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your wrath, or in your way, for his wrath can, spare, can stir up or flare up in a moment. Here's an urging. Don't put this off. You know, like, God has patience, but there's a point where that patience is going to run out. We have this picture of serving the Lord. Uh, coming to the Lord's side, joining him in what he's doing, promoting it, and to share it. He has kissed the sun. You know, in that culture, it was a sign of respect. If I was going to meet the king, 
you know, kiss him on the hand as a sign of respect to say, this is, we're not in the same level. You are the higher up position. I'm just a low servant. And so he's using this picture to say, put God first. It's an urging, don't put this off. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Don't think tomorrow. Don't think after on my deathbed. You have no guarantee that that is com coming. So we have this warning. It is coming. We have this urging. Do it now while you still can. And we have this blessing if we choose God. Verse 12 says, Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. You know, a refuge is a place of shelter. If a storm is coming, where are you going to go? Wherever you go is your refuge. If it is your basement, if it is your car and you're trying to outrun the storm, if it's a root cellar, wherever you go is considered your refuge. And when you look at this and you look and see, I'm on the highway to hell. Where is my refuge? Where am I going to go? I hope you say, my refuge is God. I'm turning to Jesus for salvation. You only have two choices. I can turn to anything else, or I can turn to, to Jesus. And the only way you get the blessing of the refuge is to turn to Jesus. There are a lot of people who are putting this off. They're, they're still scheming against God. They're still trying to find a way to, to get rid of God. Even all these people who are, are, are going to deal with this later, at some point they are going to have to deal with this. Whether it's on earth, or whether it's up in heaven, or, or on the, the white throne judgment before God, they're going to have to deal with this idea that they were, they were scheming and conniving against God, and it failed. They, it was a victory they could not win. It doesn't matter what their social class was here on earth, or their financial class, or the color of their skin, whether they were healthy or unhealthy. Everybody is going to have to stand before God, either on his side or standing with the wicked and, and facing eternal punishment in hell. You know, when I think about the healthy and the unhealthy, you know, people who get diagnosed with cancer or Lou Gehrig's disease or anything like that, they, they get kind of this stamp like you got six months to live, you got three years to live, and they look at that as the end date of their life. And they say, okay, I got six months, I got to make things right with my family, I got to make things right with my finances, I got to make things right with my enemy. But, but they, don't, they don't have a guarantee of that. I'm a very healthy person. I have no guarantee that I'm getting tomorrow. I don't have no guarantee that I'm going to see three weeks from now when the Christmas play shows up. Because God didn't guarantee it to me. That's why I need to heed this warning. That it, at some point, my life is going to be snuffed out and it's going to be too late. And then urging to do it now, not to put it off. And that God will bless me if I'm willing to do that. If I'm willing to trust Him as my Savior. You know the wicked. They're out there. They're everywhere. They're scheming and conniving against God. They're scheming and conniving against God's people. And, and for a time, it looks like they're going to win. Because people face persecution for this, and they die. Churches have been shut down. People who have preached the gospel, who have who've been on the mission field, have been silenced. So it looks like their conspiracy is gaining ground. It looks like they are going to win. But what do you know? You know that they are going to fail. They might win the little battle, but they are going to ultimately lose the war. 
So as we face this pandemic and we face all these fears of, of what is going on and, and, and shutting down churches and all these things, we have, can have confidence that God is in control. That ultimately, only things that happen is what he allows to have happen. Um, we may have to face, go through these things. We may not be a church in a year. I mean, building may be shut down and boarded up. Who knows? We may be putting... Uh, prison camps because we're Christians. And it looks like, oh no, we've lost. God has lost. But ultimately, because Jesus rose from the dead, we know we have victory. So I want you to be encouraged to hang on to your faith. Hang on to your trust no matter what is going on. Keep relying on Jesus. And then I want to encourage you to share that with other people. Because that warning is a warning they need to hear. And they need to know they need to make that decision now and that God will bless them if they do. Ultimately, Jesus wins the war, so keep your faith and your trust in him. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for your greatness. I thank you, God, for your goodness. I thank you, God, that you let us know that it may not look pretty right now, but we know that, God, ultimately you win. And we're going to experience a time on earth for a thousand years where it was perfect the way that it was supposed to be. God, I thank you that you have given us these promises that we can be confident in like you are confident in. God, I pray that we would live with that confidence and we would share that confidence with others. I pray this in Jesus' name.